Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride is Will the Thrill. Hello. And TJ2, the deuce. There it, <laughs> is. there it is. Well done, sir. Okay, so what are you drinking, T? I'm enjoying a Highland Gaelic Ale. Ooh, Ooh fancy. fancy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what are you drinking, Will? Well, I have to admit that uh, my search for something tied to this artist of note ran aground. I'm not much of a gin drinker. There is a gin catered towards this particular artist. But uh, I couldn't find it. I found out it was a limited release. So there were another drinks. There were other drinks associated with this individual, but many of them involved ingredients I would never use again. And after learning my lesson from last week, I opted for a simple vodka tonic, which I'm sure this individual consumed a fair number of in their brief lifetime. If ah. anybody's wondering, I'm having tea. <laughs> no one ever asks me though, because none of you care. <laughs> and everyone's quiet. Oh, right. continue. <laughs> Okay, well, you two are in for a treat today. Um, as I mentioned, this artist is kind of a big deal. I don't think, LD, you know a whole lot about them. I do not. And TJ, you know, I think some, but right. I will say that it's been wonderful for me to cover this individual because I realized how much I liked their work. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm, quite a, I'm quite a fan of their work, and I know some uh, something about their life history, but not no, nowhere near what you dug up in doing your research. And it, it's going to be quite a ride, folks. So we're going to start with a very difficult question to answer, and that is, who is the greatest guitar player of all time? Brian May slash uh, hey. <laughs> Eric Clapton. TJ, any weigh-ins here? Prince. Stevie Ray Vaughan. Well, I will tell you that uh, we've all had this debate. George Harrison. Oh, yeah. And the thing is, everyone to a degree is right. You named a lot of them. I mean, Slash, Clapton, Vaughan, Knopfler. Mopler, that was the Bob last Mopler's a, he's a fantastic guitar player. That was the last mm-hmm. concert I actually got to see before COVID hit was Mark Knopfler. So I'll say I like in the annals of last concerts before pandemic hits, I think I did pretty good. Oh, uh, Jeff Beck would, would yeah, definitely be on the list. Absolutely. Lindsey Buckingham, of course. Sure. Um, absolutely. Alex Lifeson, fantastic. Uh, uh, highly underrated. Yes. Highly. Uh, Kirk I'll, throw you, I'll, throw you a, I'll throw you a little change up here. Roy Clark. Roy Clark is actually yes. on a lot of the lists I'm about to get to, but uh, 
Kirk Hammett and Marty Friedman, for those of you who like metal. And I thought of that because I had a friend in college who, Marty Friedman, who was the lead guitar player of Megadeth, was a family friend and he would go to their house every Thanksgiving. So that was fun. Um, Steve Vai, weird. Steve Vai, yes. Have you, have you ever seen Steve Vai hold his hand out, like kind of, kind of hold his hand, uh, arm up and kind of hang his hand to the side? I'm not sure, no. It looks like, it looks like a flagpole with a flag on it. His thing, you have never seen hands and fingers oh, wow. as long on a human being as Steve Vai has. Oh, wow. Gary Garcia. And he did yeah. his missing tips of his fingers. Mm -hmm. Just like uh, Tony Iommi. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yep. Yep. Uh, did, Joe, Joe, didn't, he, didn't he melt plastic bottles onto his hands or something like that? He tried to. Iommi tried, Iommi, yeah. Iommi tried to, yes. Then there's, I mean, you got Dwayne Ullman, Joe Satriani, Richie Blackmore, Carlos Santana, Bonnie Raitt. Bonnie Raitt. Yeah, the Bonnie. only, the only mm -hmm. female who has a Fender guitar named mm -hmm. after her. And then there's Joe Perry of Aerosmith. The guy's phenomenal. And George Harrison, uh, as LD mentioned. Um, we've somehow managed to go this far without mentioning uh, Eddie Van Halen, and I'm going to apologize uh, for that. Actually, you we're know- We're going to get to that one. We're going to get to that one. Funny enough, yesterday, me and Will went to Wendy's, and as we were driving out, there's like a big old, can you guess the size of my penis pickup truck? <laughs> Their one redeeming quality was that flying high big and proud they had a giant van halen flag which is awesome like like a full-size like american flag hanging from their truck which is amazing oh that's awesome and it was aw and then they followed us through burbank which was so cool <laughs> so i, I think the point here yeah. is go ahead tj no, I was just going to say, I'm, I'm amazed that there are flag-flying pickup trucks in Burbank, California. But. Well, there are a few. So, you know, when it comes to the conversation of guitarists, you have a lot of options. Now, there's two things that virtually everyone agrees on. And that is, you know, everyone's right for a reason. You know, I'm sure you could pick each one of these artists. And again, my pick, as LD pointed out, is the great Dr. Brian May, who is one of my top picks, hands down. The question then becomes, how do you categorize a great guitarist? So... The thing that really got my wheels turning was my were my two favorite guitar players, which are Brian, well three, including this artist, Brian May. Little little known but highly underappreciated is James West, who is the guitar player for Weird Al Yankovic. Oh yes, because think about how much he has to do. He has to yeah. he has to emulate everybody everybody yeah. that Weird Al decides to parody. And uh, Brian May performed at the Hollywood Bowl, and we saw him. And oh, my God. his Symphony of the Planets, remember oh that? Oh, my God. Yeah, which, if you haven't heard, is phenomenal. But the point is, he was doing things that no one else was doing. So this was really my turn of the screw moment, and I thought, okay. I came up with three platforms to evaluate a guitar player, okay? They are as follows. Technical skill. Again, mm -hmm. how proficient are they with the instrument? How versatile are they? Genres, tempos, musical styles. And then finally, how innovative are they? And the last one plays to Brian May, who I think does all three of these things very well. He's versatile, innovative, and technically skilled. Uh, look at guys like- And he's sexy too. <laughs> uh, some, are, some think that. Uh, take guys like Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine. He does mm -hmm. crazy things with his guitar. In fact, one of his critics, or maybe a fan, had said, he does things to his guitar that would be illegal if you did them to an animal. <laughs> um, yes. Overlooked a lot. Uh, is that the, only means one thing. Is the, uh, <laughs> but no, you've heard the sounds he generates. They're just so. Yeah, cool. it's, it sounds like record scratching and um, just the, yeah, the, the range of sounds that he gets is so different. And, and another one right. who, this, who gets overlooked is Chris Thorne. He was the guitar player for Blind Melon. He's also a guitar player for AWOL Nation. 
he would uh, have his fingers on a cord. He would actually rip the strings of the guitar up off the neck and let him go to create the sound. It was the weirdest thing I've ever seen. Oh, weird. Um, oh, and, and then... Yep, Pete Townsend, yeah, Pete Townsend. We actually saw Pete Townsend play at Old Shella, which I yeah. think that was actually called Desert Trip, but everyone called it Old Shella. And we actually saw Pete Townsend play, and he actually plays like that. He actually the strikes the yeah. chords as a windmill. It's and amazing. It, there should be no reason why he sounds <laughs> as good as he does, but it works. Somehow. And then, then there are other people who are such stylists. Oh yeah, and like you, yeah, and, and and just riff masters like Keith Richards. Oh yeah, he's on the list too. And then Frank uh, Steve, I, I would put Steve Miller on the list. Mm -hmm. Um, having seen him in concert several times. And Frank Zappa, he's another like. Oh know. yeah. Oh, if you're getting into the experimental, mm -hmm. uh, cre creating different sounds, just totally different from what other people were doing, Zappa, a hundred percent belongs on that list. So that's my criteria: technical skill, versatility, and innovation. Now, routinely, there are polls done on this, best guitar players of all time, and Guitar World and Rolling Stone are two of the biggest. I personally like Guitar World because, I don't know if you and LD knew this, but I used to play guitar quite frequently. And yeah. I would subscribe to the magazine. So that's one reason. Uh, two is that they moved Brian May into their top three out of 100. Okay. Wow. And the final reason is because one posting a year, the number 100 slot went to fictional Christopher Guest character Nigel Tufnell from, from Spinal, Spinal Tap. He made the list. Oh, that's great. <laughs> so I'm going to lean towards Guitar World on this one, if everyone's okay with that. <laughs> now, yeah. I mean, if, now, if they really if, if they really wanted to complete the joke, they would have put him at 11. Right. Yes. <laughs> yep. Now, it's funny you mentioned that because all these guitar players for the record that we've all named wind up somewhere in this hundred. Mm -hmm. The top 10, really five through 10, get a little dicey. Uh, some of the mainstays there include B.B. King. We've got the late B.B. King. Oh, sure. Yeah. David Gilmore. That guy is phenomenal. Pink oh, yeah. Keith Richards, Stevie Ray Vaughan usually ends up in six or seven. And then Jimmy Page, of course. You have the top five, which gets a little more consistent. That's where you'll actually find Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton. And on most lists, the late great Eddie Van Halen is usually three or four. Mm -hmm. However... On all of these lists, one name always tops the charts. And that name is the name that we have not yep. said yet. <laughs> I had to keep him at on all <laughs> during this intro. Amazingly. It's Mr. Jimi Hendrix because Yay. Jimmy Jimmy did it all. You know, Jimmy was out there on a limb. He was doing things that nobody else could do. And he was also doing things no one else could think to do. Uh, one of the DJs on 955 with Mark oh, and Brian. Kelly. Kelly, yes. No, K, yeah, Kelly, K-L-O-S. Yes, Kelly, K -L -O -S. Kelly from K-L-O-S. That's what I'm trying to say. Words are hard. <laughs> she said the two best things about, uh, one of the two best things about Jimi Hendrix was that him singing and playing, it just seemed effortless. What he did just kind of happened. And the amazing thing is you break down technically what he did, it's very, very hard to do. <laughs> I mean... That and the fact that, again, he was making music that was way out of the sphere of what was going on at the time. The other is that his music in, it, in and of itself is contradictory. He was smooth, but aggressive. He was sharp, but he was pleasant on the ears. He was driving, like these riffs that would just be pumping at the same time, they would be melodic and sweet. And you'll see what I mean as we get into the songs. But when you say that, it almost, for me, invokes thoughts of Santana. There are elements of that. I mean, yeah. all these guys that we mentioned, they will all trace back to Jimi Hendrix, you'll see. They all do. 
And the research, as I mentioned in our previous episode, actually made me very sad because, well, his life, as we know, was short. And as we go through his life, the way I view it is that if a few things just went a little bit differently, he may be alive today. He may be around. He is in the infamous 27 Club, and everyone uses the phrase taken from us too soon. But I think there's so much more than that. And when we lost Jimi Hendrix in 1970, we lost a lot. So the facts of this one are not 100% clear. There's a lot of different things about Jimmy, his life, and his untimely end. And it's a sort of J.R.R. Tolkien, you know, history became legend, legend became myth. So I had to piece together a lot of things here. And I think the thing everyone will agree on was he was unbelievably talented. He was only on this planet for 27 years. He only recorded four albums in his lifetime. And bear in mind, that was at the last chunk of his lifetime. So he was a talent that was second to none. His career was fast. It was short-lived. And again, we're talking only a few years, really, in the late 60s to, again, his expiration in 1970. You're talking fast and short-lived. I'd like to let our audience know that hopefully the shower that the person is taking next door is fast and short-lived. So if you can hear that, I apologize. There's, There's someone taking a shower right now and we can't stop it because it's not either one of us so and it's largely argued that Jimi hendrix style really framed electric guitar of the 60s he was that sound and it really came out of his playing style and really made the guitar the center of rock and roll i mean he was really the first major lead guitar guy so today ladies and gentlemen of rock and roll heaven it is my honor to present to you a real guitar hero the life the music, and the unfortunate passing of Mr. James Marshall Hendricks. Born November 27th, 1942, Jimi Hendrix was actually born Johnny Allen in the city of Seattle, Washington at 10.15 a.m. in King County Hospital. So you may wonder, how did he go from Johnny Allen to Jimmy? And this is one of the first controversies of Jimmy's life. So he's not even out of the womb yet. And he's already got, you know, some controversy. So we look at Jimmy's parents. Jimmy was the son of James Allen Ross Hendricks. Good name. He was known casually as Al. So from here on in, we'll call him Al Hendricks. That was his father. Wait, you, should we call him Al? You can call me Al. (laughs) Very well done. So Al Hendricks is his father. His mother is Lucille Jeter. Al's parents were actually vaudeville performers who toured the country and settled in Vancouver, Canada. And Al was raised in a largely musical household. He was apparently quite a dancer as well as a singer. And Lucille was also raised in a musical household. They meet in the middle slash later part of 1941 in Seattle. They are quickly married, even though Lucille was only 16 at the time of their union. Oh, you know, it was a different time back then, and there was a war, and you didn't know. It's funny you mentioned the war, because that's actually very important. So, Jimmy slash Johnny is born while Al is serving with the U.S. Army in the Pacific for World War II. This is in 1942. And Daddy had been overseas for 12 months. Well, Daddy had been overseas, and let's just say Alan Lucille's union was not ideal. Al was quick to kind of go away from the musical lifestyle, but Lucille was not. She liked to drink. She liked to go out. It was no mystery that Lucille was unfaithful during their marriage. 
one of her lovers was named Johnny. Now, this is interesting because Jimi Hendrix's paternity was never officially established. Oh, wow. Yeah, Al never denied it, and Lucille never denied it. But to this day, there is a chance that he is not Al's biological son. But there wasn't really, back then, there wasn't really any paternity test, were right. there? Like, uh, not there that I'm aware like of. A, there wasn't like a definitive, like, Maury Povich, you are the father kind of test, right? I don't think so. And if they had gone to court, they may be able to get a ruling, but uh -huh. this was never done. So, again, Jimmy's just born, and his life already has some mystery around it. Okay. We don't really know. So, Al is his father, but, again, is he his biological father? That has yet to be I answered. think what's important is that he was a father to Jimmy. Correct. That's, that's the important thing, that he accepted him. He did. And he comes home from the war, and, and so it ain't his fault that his mama is a. Well, his mother. This the story uh, goes on from there. So he changes Johnny's name to James Marshall Hendricks. Now, if you can't guess by now, this is not the sign of a good union. Um, things are already on their way downhill. So one thing I want to diffuse before I go any further is this is not the genesis of the name for the famous Marshall Amp. That is not. Okay. That was actually developed by a British uh, technician named Jim Marshall. There's no Hendrix used them, but it's not connected to him in that way. So just want to point that out. So as the marriage goes on, Lucille doesn't really stop. She continues to drink very heavily. She was basically an alcoholic, although not diagnosed at such a time. And she had health and psychological problems. And she would just disappear for days at a time. So Al was often left with not only their son, Jimmy, but they went on to have four more children, including Leon, Joseph, Kathy, and Pamela. Cheese and crackers. Yep. Put an aspirin between your knees, girl. <laughs> so Lucille would just vanish. She would just go on these benders and disappear. And as you can't, as you may guess, Al finally had enough. And in 1951, he gets a divorce from Lucille. Now, it's really ugly, and there's a custody battle. Al says Lucille's not a fit parent. She's unreliable. So initially, the court's going to award custody to Al, but he can't afford to take care of five children. So as a result, the Hendricks kids are basically in and out of foster care. They're staying with neighbors. Al's trying to get it together, but it's really tough for him. Now, despite all this, remember, Jimmy's the oldest son. He loved his mother and she loved him. They actually stayed close for the remainder of Lucille's life, which wasn't all that long. Lucille died in 1958 at the age of 32 from cirrhosis of the liver and a oh, ruptured wow. spleen. Jeez. That, that you have to drink so much to get in that position, right? Oh yeah, she drank to excess and then some. So unfortunately, she'd never kicked that habit and. This is one of the unfortunate traits Jimmy would pick up and it would pervade his entire life. So you have substance abuse, you also have a fractured home, and you have financial difficulty. And these are actually things that will follow Jimmy to the end of his days. Al worked as a gardener, he worked as a janitor, he worked at a gas station, but again, he's got five kids, he's totally on his own, he can't do it. For the most part, Leon and Jimmy remain with Al, but again, he's kind of passed off to neighbors while Al works, tries to find work, tries to hold the family together. It takes him a few years to finally get settled, and he gets full custody of Jimmy and Leon. The remaining children are actually put into foster care for the rest of their youth, which is sad. This left Jimmy alone a lot, so he ended up listening to a lot of his dad's records. 
many of which were blue staples, including the one we did the episode on two weeks ago, the great Robert Johnson. Oh, wow. Yep. He listened to Robert Johnson, B.B. King, again, another just mainstay in blues, Muddy Waters. He actually listened to Buddy Holly as well. And the rumor has it that Jimmy would play along on a broom while he was listening to these tunes. He's about maybe 10 at this point. Al said, I used to have Jimmy clean up his room all the time while I was away. And when I would come home, I would find a lot of broom straws around the foot of the bed. I'd say to him, well, didn't you sweep up the floor? And he'd say, oh yeah, he did. But I found out that he used to be sitting on the end of the bed, strumming the broom like he was playing a guitar. So this moved Al and he got Jimmy his first instrument, which was a ukulele with a single string. Again, they have no money. Uh, And in Al's words, it was a huge improvement over the broom. So there you go. At age 15, Jimmy finally gets his first guitar, which was bought by his father from a secondhand store for the cost of $5, which would be about $50 in today's money. Just bear in mind, and we're going to talk about this later, that a guitar from Jimi Hendrix from the late 60s would sell anywhere from a quarter of a million to half a million dollars. So if, if he was playing it then yes. and then sold it, that's mm-hmm. how much it would be? At auction, yes. So, yeah. so how, how much would the one-string ukulele fetch on Amazon? I don't know if that survived uh, beyond Jimmy's youth. So, <laughs> But actually, no, if you think about it, that's the nexus of his, his talent. And mm-hmm. so if someone could actually find that one-string ukulele that belonged to Jimmy, I guarantee you, if they got it authenticate, authenticate, <laughs> if they made sure it was authentic, uh, then it would be worth God only knows. It's estimated that some it, Jimi Hendrix staple guitars are worth up to $2 million. If they made sure it was real full. Yeah. Real full. You know what? Shut <laughs> up. I've had a long day. <laughs> so t- two amazing things about Jimmy. Now remember, he's in by himself. So he is entirely self-taught. He learned to play songs and tune the guitar on his own. Wow. Without any instruction. So this gives rise to a common misconception about Jimmy's playing, which is, did he play a right-handed guitar backwards? The answer is yes and no. So again, I used to play, so I'll give you guys a quick guitar tutorial to understand where this is going, because it is important. Uh, yeah, because uh, neither me or Travis <laughs> have any kind of musical talent, literally whatsoever. Well, I'm L- liter- literally no end. We, we, we don't, we can't, Travis can't dance at all and he can't sing or play an instrument i can't i can't read or write music sing or play any instruments yet i once fronted a band called delbert moonshine and the frog lickers so <laughs> with some great songs classics hey uh i was on off broadway so there, there you, you go. go see there you go there you go so again for those of you who know uh, let me explain how the guitar is strung the low three strings e a and d are at the top and the high three are at the bottom g b and e So if you just flip a guitar over, the strings are backwards. You with me so far? Probably. Uh Okay. Now bear in mind, Jimmy was left-handed. There are actually accounts that say he was largely ambidextrous, but he chose to play left-handed. His father apparently tried to teach him, but Jimmy just didn't want to do it, so he just played lefty. So he restrung the guitar. So he turned the guitar over and put the low E string at the top and worked his way down, E, A, D, G, B, E. So the stringing is the same. Got it so far? Yep. Uh, Sort of. While you're trying to explain that, I was trying to figure out, do I play a left-handed guitar? Because the few times that I have tried to play guitar, 
I play like that. No, you're right-handed. That's, that, that's that, right-handed. This is right-handed? The, the hand, your dominant hand does the strumming. So if you're doing that, you're right-handed. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sorry Jimmy for, was the other way. Sorry for our listeners at home. I was just trying to figure something out on my own. So there is a reason I'm telling you this. There is only one person I've ever seen in my lifetime play an inverted guitar with the inverted string setup. And he was a guitar player for a band called the M80s, who are a popular cover band in Burbank. Okay. They were in residence at the Burbank Bar and Grill. And that means everything you're doing is upside down. The chord inversions are upside down. The, the you know, tracing the neck is upside down. Watching his hand position is very weird. And he's the only one I've seen. Hendrix's position looks normal because, again, the strings are normally configured. However, on an electric guitar, the pickup, which is the coil right in the middle, is designed to pick up the string that it corresponds with. So what that means is the top string aligns with the top pickup and the bottom string with the bottom pickup. So if you flip that over, if you flip the strings, but you don't flip the pickup, it means the ones geared towards picking up the high strings are now on the low end and the other way around. So what this meant was when Jimmy played an electric guitar, his lower notes were amplified by high pickups and the high notes were amplified by the low pickups, which actually gave him his unique sound. Well, there, there are a lot of musicians, maybe not a lot, but a, a few I can think of, who have done things like that that have, have altered their sound tremendously. Oh, yeah. Sometimes, mm -hmm. And sometimes it's out of necessity. It may have been in his right. case because, you know, he just he, he did the best he could to string a right-handed guitar upside down. Yep. But like a, a person we're going to do an episode on next month, you know, Neil Peart, played drums holding the thin end yeah the, the opposite way yeah yes he held them up and but he did that out of necessity because he hit the drum so hard he broke his sticks all the time <laughs> that's what i heard it, 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 it was mainly an attempt to not break his sticks which is but amazing. it gave him a thicker heavier sound and what this did for jimmy was you have these lower notes which are now kind of airy and cool sounding and these high notes that are a bit more earthy so it created a very unique sound that really nobody else was doing. And bear in mind, at this point, there weren't a lot of left-handed guitars. So if Jimmy wanted a left-handed guitar, it would have to be custom-made. And the Hendrix family just obviously couldn't afford that. So he attended the Garfield High School, which is in Seattle. And in 1958, Jimmy joins his first band with a new electric guitar. It was a Supra Ozark Model 1560S. And if you find that, I don't know how much it would be worth. Probably a considerable sum. So Jimmy's first band was the Velvetones, which actually looks like Velvet Ones. So we have an Oneater situation on our hands here. <laughs> uh, the Velvetones played school dances, charity events, small gigs. And Jimmy was already making a name for himself because, as you may have known if seeing videos of Jimmy, he would play, you know, behind his neck and all that stuff. He was doing this as a teenager. So he became kind of a local spectacle and started playing in other local bands. Now. Jimmy became, in his teenage years, a bit of a rebel. We think this is part of, partially due to his messy home life, partially, you know, to go against Al's discipline. But uh, he started getting into some trouble, and he dropped out of high school at age 17. According to Jimmy's account, he smart-mouthed a teacher to get him kicked out of school. There are different thoughts as to why this would happen. So he worked for his father briefly, and Hendrix does join the Army in 1961, but the reasoning behind it is a little less pure than I just wanted to serve my country. In 1961, Jimi Hendrix was arrested on two occasions, both for joyriding. So basically, he took a car without permission. And he was given that choice of go to the army 
or go to jail. So Jimmy takes the army. And where does he end up, LD? He ends up at Fort Campbell, joined up with the prestigious 101st Airborne Division. I know them! Band of Brothers! That's right. They- I'm still I'm still trying to get my head around um, Jimmy playing like at school dances. Do you yeah. think it was like when Michael J. Fox played played that lead guitar part in uh, <laughs> at the prom and Back to the Future? I imagine it's what it would look like, yeah. Yes. Enjoy that that reference, children. That's pretty much the only brother, the only <laughs> film my brother knows in pop culture, other than Tombstone. <laughs> so Jimmy joins up with the Screaming Eagles. The 101st gained notoriety for the air invasion of Normandy in the Second World War. Obviously, the ground assault went to the Second Rangers, but that's another conversation altogether. And he had an electric guitar, and he continued to play it. So if you can't guess by now, Jimmy is not quite interested in being a military man. He's more interested in music. Which, looking back on the situation, it's like, well, yeah. He does, however, meet someone who shares that passion, and that is bass player Billy Cox. Billy Cox and Jimmy form a band called the King Casuals, all spelled with K's. And they played out and about, again, local gigs, bars, clubs, whenever they could basically get off base, do anything. People say that Jimmy was actually quite shy. They described him in person as being very low in confidence, quiet, and polite. But when he got on stage, he was totally different. He just blew up on stage. So he had sort of this alternate persona that happened when he was playing in front of people. But he was still reluctant to sing. So whenever someone looks at Jimi Hendrix, bear in mind what he's doing technically on the guitar, the songs he's creating, the sounds he's creating, and oh yeah, he's singing too. So just keep that in mind. Of course, alcohol is still a problem at this point. He is consuming a fair amount even at this stage, but we're going to get into that a little later. Jimmy gets a second guitar, a Dan Electro, continues to play with the casuals. And at this point, there's a bit of, shall we say, mystery about how Jimmy left the U.S. Army. Jimmy claims that he broke his ankle during a training exercise. The Army claims that he wasn't focused on military duties due to working on his guitar. (laughs) There's also a claim that Jimmy told people within the military that he was actually gay. So all of this sort of amounted to the army not being a right fit for Jimmy. And as we will see later in his life, Jimmy loved the ladies and the ladies loved Jimmy. For whatever reason, the army and Jimmy decide to part ways. So he's discharged officially in 1962. He makes his way to Clarksville, which is right on the border of Tennessee and Kentucky. About I, I wonder if he took the last train. Nice. <laughs> which is about an hour northwest of Nashville. He got paid by the army, of course, and he made a little bit of money playing gigs, but Jimmy had a really bad habit. Jimmy liked to go out and have a good time, and it is estimated that he would go to bars and nightclubs and drop anywhere from $300 to $400 in a single evening, which in today's money would be somewhere between $2,800 and $3,300. Just on booze? on booze, whatever, yeah, in a nightclub. Oh, wow. Yeah, Those had better be some good chicken wings. (laughs) Yeah. So Jimmy ran into a bit of a problem because he got to the point where he had to sell his guitar. And he often found himself in this sort of quandary. So he has the Dan Electro. He actually sells it in 1962. Can't make any money. So he has to go and beg to get it back. And this kind of continues over the years, which ultimately leads to the Dan Electro disappearing somewhere in Clarksville. So it is thought that this is somewhere in Tennessee, and if anyone finds it, it could be worth quite a bit. Well, look, if you can find a fair copy of the Declaration of Independence <laughs> in the attic somewhere in, like, Mount Vernon, like, you can 
you can, can retire. Find, you can find this guitar. Yeah, well, it's it's missing apparently, according to history. Uh, we do need to take a short break for a message from our sponsors. And we're back. Now back to Jimi Hendrix. So Jimmy's kind of stuck in Nashville at this point. He doesn't have money to go home and he doesn't have enough money to stay. So he gets his guitar back and kind of plays in local clubs, plays some jazz bars, just kind of makes do until his buddy Billy gets out of the army, at which point they reform the King Casuals and they head to Nashville. So Jimmy gets pegged very early as a rising talent. He's playing a lot of clubs in Nashville. He's getting taken to some of the more prominent black nightclubs. And he finally makes a little bit of cash. And in 1963, he takes a trip home to visit his grandmother. Remember, she was in the vaudeville circuit, ends up in Vancouver. He plays with another band and catches the eye of none other than Little Richard. Oh, wow. So this is where you've heard Jimmy's music before you've heard Jimmy's music, because Little Richard hires Jimmy as a studio musician. Okay, sorry to interrupt, mm -hmm. but Jimmy's mother's name was? Lucille. And Little Richard had a song called Lucille. Huh. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? Yeah. I'm and Baby King had a guitar called Lucille. Lucille. It's all coming together. Oh and, my and God. And Kenny Rogers had a song called. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing is for sure that Jimmy was touring with Little Richard and playing in the studio. In fact, if you look at pictures of Jimi Hendrix alongside Little Richard, you can see some of their fashion choices lining up with each other. I've, I've seen video or, or some, I, I, they wouldn't be video, like old film of, of that. It's so funny to see Jimi Hendrix like standing in the background, yep. like swaying rhythmically while he plays. <laughs> like well, him, and, him and a bass player like, boo, 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 Well, boo, remember boo. that Jimi was, he didn't have very high self-esteem. So he was sort of shy to take the spotlight. Uh, but it was known that he clashed with Little Richard. In fact, this is my favorite criticism of Jimi Hendrix. Little Richard said that Jimmy was too flamboyant. How <laughs> does that happen? Woo! How are you too Tell flamboyant it. for Little Richard? So I'd like to play you one of the tracks that Jimmy was playing on. This one comes to us from Little Richard, and the tune is called I Don't Know What You've Got, But It's Got Me. Ah! 
telling you this guy me Baby, baby, baby I feel so all alone Sometimes I just cry Sometimes I even moan Because, baby I don't know what it is But I find myself living at your will Oh, baby Please Sometimes my best friend Comes to me on my job And he look at me and he say, Richard Man, you don't know what's going on. And I look at my friend because I'm innocent. And my friend look at me and say, Richard, you don't know what's going on. I got something to tell you. And look what my friend tell me. This is what he say to me. Now you cheat, 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 cheat on me. Because I know it's got me. Listen, I gave you all the money I had in the bank. Not one time, not one time did you say thanks. But baby, I don't know what you got. Honey, I say, I don't know what you got. Here's the thing, you can hear the the beginnings of what becomes <laughs> Jimi Hendrix. But the thing is, the vocals on that, can I focus on that? It almost sounds a little bit like Sam Cooke-ish. Yeah. yeah. And oh gosh, who did the I should I feel like I know this and I'm being a terrible person. Who did Please Come Home for Christmas on the 2000 Charles Brown? Was it the was it well it was on the the soundtrack for Love actually, and that's going to drive me crazy because his. Well, I mean, the, I, I don't know who did that version. Charles, you know, Charles Brown did it. The Eagles did it. Bon Jovi did it. I don't think it bon was Jovi did it. Not yeah. as well as the other people I mentioned, but. So you had mentioned uh, Sam Cooke, right? Yes. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because by 1964, Jimmy was well known for being a you know studio guitar guy. He was playing with Sam Cooke, Tina Turner, the Isley Brothers, and of course. Wow. So he was making a name for himself. In fact, and here's, the thing that the, the thing that kills me is that you're sitting here talking about, well, you know, in 64, 65, wherever we're at now, he's a well-known studio musician. And you're like, he's five years away from dying. Yeah, he's on the clock. He's got this. He, we, he hasn't started to author the incredible legacy that most of us know him for. Yeah, he's got six years left on the on the clock. Uh, uh, he's got crazy. six years left to live, and he's yep. it, God. The, the the music he's going to make between now and then is amazing. And it's actually through Sam Cooke that he meets. Now, this woman has perhaps my favorite name in this entire episode, Lithophane Pridgen. Ah, 
Did you look up her pronunciation guide for uh, that? I tried. I probably butchered it. Uh, she went by Faye. So that's what we're going to go with. So Lithophane Pridgen. She was actually romantically involved with Sam Cooke and apparently romantically involved with Jimmy. Get it, girl. So Jimmy, if you can't guess by now, is not the kind of guy to be in an exclusive relationship. He dates a lot of women, many simultaneously, there are a few women that came up claiming to be engaged to Jimi Hendrix, but there was never a finalized union. It is, in fact, this that may have led to his death. What? But we're going to get to that later. What? So Jimmy's, again, playing around. He's meeting some of the top people in music at this point, and he decides he's going to go to New York. So he sets up, he takes on a new name. His name is now Jimmy James. And he founds a band, Jimmy James and the Blue Flames. And they set up shop in the East Village, and they're playing a lot of prominent clubs at the time. And he happens to meet a young lady, a model, by the name of Linda Keith, who was dating Keith Richards. So he's in New York, he's playing gigs, and it's actually Linda Keith that in many ways could be considered his launch to stardom, because she was so taken with Jimmy, she said, I've got to introduce you to some people. And he starts meeting some people Keith knows. So this is the Stones, obviously. They're a bit of a big deal. And he meets producers like Seymour Stein, who actually discovered Madonna. Mm -hmm. uh, Andrew Olin was another major one. And Linda's basically getting these people to go to clubs and see Jimmy. Now, Jimmy's still broke at this point. He really doesn't manage his money well. So she loans him one of Keith Richards' white Fender Stratocaster guitars. Unfortunately, this is around the time where Jimmy takes to being a bit reckless on stage. And during a show at the Cheetah Club, it is alleged that he smashed and burned Richard's white Stratocaster. Oh, wow. Uh, yep, which uh, was not received very well. It was also this time that he started to get in touch with some, shall we say, shady characters. One of the main ones who's actually going to follow through his entire life is a young lady named Devin Wilson, who acquired the nickname Super Groupie of the 60s. Wow. She meets Jimmy in 65. And I want you to remember her name because she's connected to Jimmy, but she's also romantically linked to these artists. Here we go. <gasps> Jimi Hendrix, Mick Jagger, Brian Jones, Eric Clapton, Dwayne Allman, Quincy Jones, and Miles Davis. Wow. But Devin Wilson is now linked up with Jimmy. One of the famous stories about her is that she planned a birthday party for Jimmy, but blew the whole thing off to have sex with Keith Rich with uh, Mick Jagger. <laughs> <laughs> so she was a bit of a I don't know why that, I don't yeah. I have no idea why that tickled me the way it did. Well it's funny. Well I was gonna throw a birthday for you, but uh I had sex with the Rolling Stones. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Devin was openly bisexual and she sort of appointed herself as Jimmy's kind of PR person. She would actually arrange for threesomes and orgies with Jimmy. She was also known to be able to procure him drugs anywhere he went. And you will see that she remains very close with Jimmy up until his death in 1970. And we'll get to that in a little bit. So in the last couple of years, things have changed drastically for Jimmy. And he's on the way up. And as you mentioned before, TJ, this is only 66. So we've got only a few years left. Yeah, he's got four, four years left at mm -hmm. this point. Now things are going to start to blow up for Jimmy. He's performing at the Cafe Wa, which is located in Greenwich Village. And he meets Animals bassist and manager... Brian James Chandler, also known as Chaz Chandler. This was an introduction by Linda Keith, of course. 
Chandler is very taken with the young, young musician. Now, Jimmy's 23 at this point. He's only 23 years old. So Chas Chandler says to Jimmy, come to London with me, and basically we're going to get your career going. It was also Chandler who suggested he continue the whole smashing and burning guitar thing. So he said, that's good, stick with it. So the two jump on a flight, and this is in eh, 1965, 66. And two things apparently happened on this flight over to London from New York. Chas says he's convinced Jimmy's going to be a star and he's going to drop out of the animals to manage Jimmy exclusively. Now think about this. The animals were pretty much at the peak in 1966. They were huge, yeah. yeah. So he's taking a huge gamble, but he says, I'm going to manage you. He also says that Jimmy needs to change the spelling of his name. So the famous spelling of J-I-M-I is born on a transatlantic flight, yeah. as the story goes. So Jimmy shows up in London, and the first thing Chandler does is bring in some extra muscle. He appoints a manager named Michael Jeffrey. Michael Jeffrey was a club opener in Newcastle, England. He was also a manager for the animals, and he was rather connected. He also introduces Jimmy to a young lady named Kathy Etchingham, who filed that name away because she's actually largely considered one of Jimmy's greatest muses and perhaps the love of his life. In fact, they get involved right away. So right off the bat, she meets Jimmy, and that night they go back to the hotel together. Jimmy was a, he was quite the ladies man. I mean, but it is the 60s. It is the 60s. So it's a little bit of a different mindset than we have now. It's the swinging 60s. Yeah. Now at this time, they're trying to shop him around London. So Chas is acting as Jimmy's sort of patron. Again, he's paying for him to live in a hotel. He's paying for his sessions. He's trying to get in front of people. And who do they get him in front of? Well, a young guitarist named Eric Clapton. I think I've heard of that Maybe you've heard of this guy? Go and play Mm -hmm. something. Yes? No? Mm -hmm. Jimmy was invited to join Cream on stage and jam with them. And they were playing a show in northeast, northern edge of London. And during the show, Clapton actually stepped aside for Jimmy to take lead duties. Wow. So here's the quote from Clapton. There's two quotes, one at the time and one later in life. Clapton said at the time, he turned to Chandler and said, you never told me the kid was this good. And in his biography many years later, he looks back on that night and says, everybody was gobsmacked. I remember thinking that here was a force to be reckoned with. It scared me because he was clearly going to be a huge star and we were just finding our own speed. He was the real thing. Yeah. So again, you've got this London music scene, which is quite vibrant at this point, in walks this nowhere kid from Seattle, untrained, and just owns the joint right off the bat. I would would imagine. Okay, so we're talking, we're getting into the later 60s now? Correct, 66, 67, yeah. So now we're talking like heyday of the Beatles. Mm-hmm. I guess we're talking Cream is starting to. Cream is coming up, yep. Starting to break. We're getting close to Led Zeppelin and. Yeah, oh, yes. Yeah, so I mean, this is there's a lot happening in England at this point. Jefferson Airplane. You've got Led Zeppelin. The Papas. I mean, like the landscape of music is beginning to change and move towards more. Well, like but I mean, spe- specifically in England, I mean, you've got Zeppelin is about to break. You're at the very end of the Beatles. You're mm-hmm. not that far from Black Sabbath. No, no. Really, you're, you're very close to, to the first Sabbath album. So, And yet, in walks a scrawny black kid from Seattle, and he's and just... I, and I was going to say, and, and that so much heavy guitar rock is about to come out of there, mm-hmm. then it's probably not a coincidence that this is not long after Jimi Hendrix came and started playing there. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. In fact, many of these people that he's meeting now point to him as an influence later in life you know you got your stones your claptons your all these guys so 
Chandler's working on getting Jimmy out there. He actually pulls together a little band for him with Michael Jeffrey's help. They take the one of the guys from the Animals, the guy Noel Redding. He played with them. Mm-hmm. He uh, joins them as a bass player, which he was reluctant to do because Redding wanted to take guitar. But uh, to that, I say, uh, he's Jimi Hendrix and you are not. Good day, sir. Right. I said yeah. good day. <laughs> I said good day. And with them is also paired up. They're going for the Power Trio lineup, which is very popular. A highly, highly overlooked drummer. So we're talking about drummers in November. And that's Mitch Mitchell. That guy was phenomenal. So there you have it. You've got your Noel Redding, your Mitch Mitchell, and Jimi Hendrix. And they became Jimi Hendrix Experience. That's tough to say. Yes. <laughs> Especially when you're drinking. Especially when I'm drinking. That, that's why I'm largely just sitting here. So over the course of the next year, which takes us to 1967, they release a number of singles. And one of them we're going to play in just a moment is, of course, Hey Joe. There's a lot of history around this song and about who actually wrote it. There was a guy named Dino Valenti who claimed that he wrote it, but then he admitted that he lied later. It's thought that it was actually written by a New York musician named Billy Roberts, who was a, quote, busker. Oh, during the late 60s. I, I wow. don't know what it is, but yeah. I do love the idea of people who busk. And I think <laughs> specifically because of the first person I ever discovered who was busking, <laughs> which was Patricia Quinn from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Like, she didn't follow up with any kind of her fame after that that became a big cult classic <laughs> because she was, like, busking around England. And then Joey Cook <laughs> from American Idol, who I found busking at the time that's hilarious and wow so I, I i do love buskers they just they make they bring me joy then, yeah. well whatever whatever the reason the origins of the song are debatable however the hendrix version is not it is often considered the ultimate version of this song and that's what we're going to listen to now released in 1967 this is hey joe
And, and we were just talking. We were just talking as that song played, uh, Will the Thrill. Mm-hmm. That there's several things that stand out. One, how tight that band was, and how good all three of them were. Oh, they were. And amazing. the other thing, the other thing is Jimmy could sing. It's funny that he didn't want to early on. Oh yeah, no, he shied away from it actually. Yeah, he's not. He's not. He's he's a he's a good. He was a good singer. Oh yeah. One thing I said from that song is when you take those little things Jimmy does, all those little blues licks, like, because LB, you said it was very bluesy. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how he would just throw something in, like a chef adding a pinch of salt. It was just like, ah, oh, that goes there. And it's perfect. Yeah. It's flawless. So, obviously, the Jimi Hendrix experience blows up. They end up at the Monterey Pop Festival in California in 1967. And this is the famous performance where Jimi Hendrix closed the show playing Wild Thing by the Trogs and lit his guitar on fire. So you all know the iconic photo of Jimi on his knees with the guitar burning. That is not at Woodstock. Many people mistake it for Woodstock. It is actually the Monterey Pop Festival, 1967. Which we actually talked about in our Janis Joplin episode. So if you want to hear about that, hop back there because I do cover a lot of the Monterey Pop Festival. Because she was there. And, and then how many people, you have to ask, you wonder how many people have done that since he did it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was. Said something. How many people smashed a guitar because they saw Pete Townsend do it? How many people set one on fire <laughs> because they saw Jimi Hendrix do it? I've been to a concert where one was lit on fire. Oh, wow. You guys are so much more adventurous than me because, <laughs> like, I've never seen any wanton destruction of my instruments. <laughs> the thing about Jimmy is, again, he didn't really value those kind of things. He was known for wrecking his guitars and sometimes hotel rooms. And actually, later on in life, he was very much accused of getting a car, utterly destroying it, and then just buying another car like that day. He would apparently do this. So, again, The Experience releases their main album, Are You Experienced, in 1967, which includes Hey Joe, Fire, great song, Purple Haze, an original by Jimi Hendrix, and, of course, Foxy Lady. So those who are doubting the innovation of Jimi Hendrix, there is a chord from Foxy Lady named after him. The famous F-sharp 7-9, I believe, is the... Foxy. That is actually called the Hendrix chord. I'm not kidding. Wow. Yeah, he invented one. So uh, the critics were largely divided on the album, although everyone agreed that Jimmy was fantastic. They thought the songs were okay. His talent was undeniable, but that doesn't really matter. The album spent 106 weeks on the Billboard Top 200 and sold over 5 million copies in the U.S. alone. Wow. That's impressive. And they go out on tour. So this is starting the beginning of the end. Now we're in 1968. Wow. Jimmy signed a bad contract with this. And later in life, he said he basically didn't know what he was doing. Part of this meant touring at an unreasonable schedule, which was managed by Michael Jeffrey. It's also speculated this is the point where Jeffrey started siphoning off Jimmy's funds. Jimmy was basically always broke, as we said, he had financial problems. But it was thought that at the peak of this going on, Michael Jeffrey was siphoning 60% of Jimmy's money and allocating 30% to an offshore bank account in the Bahamas. So this is actually like worse than what Colonel Tom Parker was doing to Elvis. Quite possibly, and it's about to get much worse. Um, Jimmy obviously turned to drugs and alcohol. Well, wait, wait, wait. Wasn't he the kind of guy who, I don't know if this is true. Yeah, I don't know if this is true or if this is like rock legend. 
but I have the one thing I knew about Jimi Hendrix going into this mm -hmm. was that he would put the strips of acid in his headband. Yes, he would take them through his temples. Yes. Yeah. That is true. Okay. He I mean, would actually do that to absorb more. Yeah, you, mm -hmm. you get it because it goes through your sweat glands and gets absorbed into your. Body. Because you want to you want to maximize your yellow sunshine. I mean, who wants to waste that? Yeah. Now here's the thing that is known about Jimmy. Jimmy is like a rock star. He does a lot of drugs. Okay, those close to him say he didn't like the hard stuff. So cocaine, heroin wasn't really his thing. He actually liked the psychedelics. He liked the artist drugs, as they're called. You know, LSD, acid, mushrooms. mushrooms. Yeah, mushrooms. Uh, this led to an unfortunate interaction with the uh, Swedish law enforcement in Sweden. They're on tour and Jimmy gets popped for drug possession, hit with a fine. It's one of the first of many problems he'll have. In 1968, the experience releases their second and third album, Axis Bold as Love and Electric Ladyland. Now, many consider Electric Ladyland to be the seminal work of the Jimi Hendrix experience. I disagree. I think it's Are You Experienced, the first album. And... It's up for debate. The second that album though, Electric Ladyland, included work with Steve Winwood, DJ. He collaborated. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna share you a track from Electric Ladyland. It actually closes the album. We won't indulge in the 14-minute version for the sake of our listeners, but I would be remiss if we not, did not play this classic. Here is the slight return of Voodoo Child.
So LD, you had not heard that before. I'm going to be honest with you, and I might be crucified by some of our listeners, but I was really not, I mean, T, you can help back me up on this. We weren't a Hendrix household growing up. Not growing up, no. That's something I kind of discovered a little later. Yeah, but you People know. People have to understand, we, if, if, if it wasn't, LD and I probably, until we were, in, oh, our 13, 14 years old, didn't realize that they made music after like 1970. <laughs> like we thought there was, they, they stopped. They just stopped. And that the only people, and that the only people who made it were Smokey Robinson and Herman's Hermits. And <laughs> and literally anyone in Motown. And Motown. Yes, Motown. Motown, Stax, and a few people from England, and that's about oh, it. Uh, and we thought that the god that gave us all this music, her name was Harriet Coffee. <laughs> so right. she was the only woman that was allowed to give us music. So this this tiny woman that lived inside our car was the one that gave us this music. So right. that it was, was, we were largely unaware that this existed until, right. uh, until, you know, a good bit later. Yeah. So this is uh it's clear that this is a masterclass in guitar work. It's, it's sure. incredible. I I've never heard this before. I'm so sorry to our audience. <laughs> and it's, it's awesome. And it's one that's, that's been covered by some of the greats of the great. Absolutely. You and I were just, we were discussing as it played, you know, to me, this is one of the few songs where I can say, well, you know, there's somebody who plays this as well as Jimmy does. And you, Stevie Ray, right? There, Steve, Stevie Ray Bond's version is, is is amazing. But he would, I'm sure, even he would have deferred to, to you know, Jimmy's version. But they're, you know, one and one A, pretty much, exactly. in my opinion. So there's Voodoo Child. It was on the Electric Ladyland album. I actually closed it out. And we're into 1969, so we're in the final year of Jimmy's life. So we're going to hit a bit of a downturn, unfortunately, for our friend Jimmy. 1969, the experience is touring. Jimmy gets stopped again in Toronto, popped for drug possession. Only this time, he's caught with hashish and heroin, two drugs that his friends say he didn't use. Interesting. Men blame his manager, Michael Jeffrey. And his involvement is getting a little iffy at this point. In that same year, he has a falling out with Kathy Etchingham, who has been with him this entire time, sort of on and off in a 60s love sense. In a show, after a show in Denver in June of 69, it was actually the Denver Pop Festival, Noel Redding decides he's had enough. He can't deal with Jimmy's behavior. He can't deal with the drama. He says, I'm out. Mitch Mitchell is actually starting a family, so the touring life is not quite for him. And with that, the experience kind of fizzled in the middle of 1969. At the time of their dissolution, the Experience was the second most popular band in the U.S., silver medal only, to Simon and Garfunkel. Hey, Simon wow. Garfunkel. Yeah. That's amazing. That so, is so much good hair. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of hair there. Oh, yeah. So I think a lot of folks are wondering, did Jimi Hendrix write, you know, ballads? And there are a few. I'm going to go with the most popular by far, which no one knows who it was written for. Although many speculate that it was actually penned for Kathy Etchingham, the love of Jimmy's life. So we're going to slow it down a little bit into a beautiful tribute song. I think one of Jimmy's best. And that is The Wind Cries Mary. After all the jets in the boxes And the clowns Have all gone to bed 
can hear happiness staggering on down the street. Footprints dressed in red. They turn a blue tomorrow Shine the emptiness down on my bed The tiny island sags downstream Cause the life we live Beautiful song. Absolutely gorgeous. Gorgeous. Fantastic. And many believe penned for Kathy Etchingham. Which is which is funny then. It's hey Kathy, I wrote a song for you. I uh, used the name uh, Mary. Yeah, again, no one really knows. Oh, you know what though? Speaking of Kath, Kathy, Kath, uh, yesterday we decided to go to the Hollywood Forever Glendale, which mm -hmm. is the graveyard in Glendale that has like a, a ton of famous people in it. And we actually found the calf of Chicago fame. Yeah. Uh, oh, which which is has a, a there's a Hendrix connection there. Is there Hendrix in Chicago? Well, okay, so we're well, we're not terribly off topic because it's still about Jimmy. At some point, at one point, Jimi Hendrix took Chicago on the road with him. They may still have been called the Chicago Transit Authority at that point. He saw them play somewhere, and he came up to them after the show and said, hey, guys, you know, I'd, I'd really love to get you guys out on the road with me. And they were like, you know, you, you can imagine 
how mm-hmm. how flattered, how floored they were. Mm-hmm. Here's Jimmy freaking Hendrix yeah. saying, "God, I love you guys. You should get out there. You know, come out and play with me." And they were like, "Well, really?" He said, "Yeah, yeah. You know, your your horn section sounds like it's coming from one set of lungs, and your guitar player is better than I am." Oof. Ooh, speaking wow. speaking of, speaking of Terry Kath. Wow. Yeah. So. Well, what was uh what was crazy was we were in the same cemetery as Sammy Davis Sr., Sammy Davis Jr., L. Frank Baum, L. Frank Baum, mm-hmm. uh, Michael Jackson was buried there, but all those other than L. Frank Baum are all not open to the public. So there are areas of the cemetery that you're not allowed to go to. Yeah. Right. And I don't want to be one to get kicked out of a cemetery. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a that, that's what, yeah that, that's a weird thing to have on the resume. <laughs> All right, so um, we get back. Okay, but you but you saw you actually saw Terry Kath's grave. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Okay. But yes, uh, Hendrix was apparently an unabashed fan of Terry Kath's. Well, the thing is, Hendrix, and this is actually going to come up later. He liked a more robust ensemble. He liked having horns and different sections to play with. He actually didn't enjoy the three man kind of lineup. Wow. Okay. Yeah, he liked to have those options. So, a lot of people think that the Woodstock performance was the Jimi Hendrix experience, and it was actually not. Huh. So they've sort of disbanded at this point. Within a couple of months, Jimmy phones up Billy Cox from his King Casuals days, and Billy says, yeah, sure, I'll join you. Mitch Mitchell decides to go back with them. His son is born, and he decides to go back on the road to make some money. And he's like, Fuck this baby stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go, I'm gonna go <laughs> play drums for Jimmy. Yeah. And they, they form the band Gypsy Sun and Rainbows, and this is the band that takes the stage on August 18th, 1969, at Woodstock, <laughs> which I think is for Woodstock the equivalent of the Queen Live Aid performance, would be that performance for that. Probably, festival. yeah, yes. probably so. Yes, well, it's it's really interesting with Woodstock because mm-hmm. we had this idea that it was like the greatest festival in the world, mm-hmm. but the fact is no real standout performance came from the actual music except for Jimi hendrix most people don't realize credence clearwater revival was there oh yeah they were yeah there. because but, they've they've largely worked very hard to get their set removed from most recordings because john fogarty thought they sucked that day <laughs> yeah but it's it's usually about the the experience of being at woodstock and less about the music and a, yes and three people dying and a baby being born and Abby Hoffman getting his ass kicked by Pete Townsend and pretty much wavy, wavy, wavy gravy and yeah. all that kind of stuff. So we will play that iconic moment where Jimi Hendrix closes the show with the national anthem because it's just, I think, again, one of those things you take, again, what else came out of Woodstock? A lot of things are up to date, but that is undeniable. Absolutely. So we're going to segue into that, which of course ended with the burning of his guitar. A strong political statement. Again, this is during the Vietnam War. Jimmy also had connections to the Black Panthers. Yep. So this was a highly political moment for Jimmy. And I do want to play this one, which is just a couple minutes. Here it is, the Star Spangled Banner.
Yeah, okay, couple things about that song mm -hmm. there. Uh, if we started at our school day playing that, I probably would have stayed awake during most of my <laughs> classes. And uh, the other thing is, I think the only person that can make the Star Spangled Banner more than a minute and a half and be completely unapologetic with it would be Aretha Franklin, which she did. And she did, She yeah. was like, this is my song. I'm going to sing it and it's going to be 45 minutes long and you're going to listen to it and you're going to love it. Basically, so shut up. Aretha and Jimmy, those are the only two. <laughs> yep. So as you mentioned before, TJ, you'd think this would be a, a you know momentous year. It'd be good for Jimmy. Well, sure. that's, really, that's really where the good stuff stops. So strap on your skis. We're going downhill, folks. So first, there is a lawsuit re related to Jimmy's managing and recording contract. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Mike Jeffrey was doing some shady things, and his first contract for the album Are You Experienced was signed with a producer named Ed Chalpin. Jimmy signed a contract that bound Hendrix to him. Uh, sorry, Jimmy signed a contract that bound him to Chalpin for three years, touring, recording, everything. During that time, the contract stated that Jimmy would only receive $1 and 1% of the recording profits. How is oh that my God. He got He got hosed. How so, did you sign because that? Because he signed, he signed to, like many, many artists who aren't, aren't business savvy, aren't um, reading the fine print in the contracts, mm -hmm. and, and just, and or, or are too trusting of people that they're around and like and, and stuff. He signed a horrible contract, and it's mm -hmm. happened to a lot of people. And a lot of people may say, well, why would his manager, Michael Jeffrey, be okay with this? Well, the supposition is Jeffrey was going to benefit from it in some way. So he was in bed with Chalpin. Again, money going to a Bahamian account. So during all this, all the money that Jimmy had made gets frozen. The courts step in and they freeze all his assets. Oh, wow. When that happened, he was the highest paid rock musician to date. Wow. Yep. And everything goes on ice. As a result of this lawsuit, it does create a fourth album, which we'll get into later, in which Chalpin gets distribution rights, but Jimmy gets the proceeds. That's going to come in a little bit. However, in the fall of 1969, something very strange happens to Jimmy, and I don't know if you guys heard of this. He gets kidnapped for two days. What? So, huh? Jimi Hendrix. What's that, TJ? I said do what? <laughs> so, Jimi Hendrix is abducted by, quote, two New York mafia thugs. Okay, in the fall of 1969. In the two-day time in which he's kidnapped, the kidnappers are contacting his management and people saying, give us ransom or give us a cut of the next album. How this ended is still up for debate. Some sources say that Michael Jeffrey called and threatened the kidnappers and they released him. Others say that some armed goons working for Michael Jeffrey barged in and took Jimmy. Jimmy claims he was so high he doesn't remember anything. <laughs> So many people believe this was actually a stunt by Michael Jeffrey to sort of paint Jimmy into a corner and say, you need me. And either way, he's trying to come out as a hero here. Uh, at this point, Jimmy is quite vocal about wanting to get away from Jeffrey. The two are clashing because it's like the film Bohemian Rhapsody. Jeffrey wants viable commercial music. Jimmy wants to experiment. Jeffrey wants the power trio. Jimmy wants a full backing of a band so he can, you know, do more stuff. However you look at it, 
the relationship is souring and Jimmy wants to get Gypsy Sun and Rainbows away from Michael Jeffrey. Jeffrey is saying he's unreliable, he's wasting recording time, he's high all the time, so the two are just completely at odds. Gypsy Sun and Rainbows keep touring well into January of 1970. Can I just say that's the dumbest name I've ever heard? It's pretty 60s, isn't it? <laughs> Gypsy Sun and, and Rainbows. Rainbows. Very 60s. Sorry. The existence of said band fizzles in January of 1970 in which Sun and Rainbows perform at Madison Square Garden in a show that can only be described as a complete and utter fiasco. Jimmy allegedly came out on stage, played one song. An audience member asked him to play Foxy Lady. He told off the audience member, played a different song, then sat down on the drum stand for a while doing nothing before he looked up at the audience, shook his head and said, I'm sorry, we can't get it together and left the stage. A riot ensued. Mm. So all hell breaks loose. Half of the band quits on the spot. Billy Cox is kind of on the fence because he knew Jimmy from his army days. He was trying to, he's trying to get his head together. Michael Jeffrey blames the tour manager and they get into a fist fight. It's a complete disaster. At that point, Jimi Hendrix was quoted as saying, it was like the end to a long fairy tale. In April of that year, Jimmy decides he's going to bring back the experience. So he calls up Billy Cox, who will thankfully take his calls. And Mitch Mitchell, who I guess doesn't have a whole lot of other things going on in life, is just like, I'll do it. So they get back together again with the sort of understanding that they want to get away from Mike Jeffrey. So keep that in mind as we go forward. Jimmy's drug use goes through the roof at this point. And bear in mind this whole time, he's not only doing drugs, he's drinking. So he's got alcohol, he's got drugs, and a tour schedule that makes no sense. Apparently, on the heels of Jeffrey trying to sort of pin down Jimmy, he would deliberately schedule venues in difficult places. Like he would be in Toronto one day, and the next night he'd be in Miami. And then they'd send him to California. So Jimmy's just completely wiped out. He's physically and mentally exhausted. At this point, two women, one from Denmark and one from Sweden, come forward with alleged paternity claims against Jimmy. Now, a lot of people say, does Jimi Hendrix have any children? This is never officially established. Both paternity suits are thrown out the window. Many believe it was an attempt for them to get a hold on Jimmy's money. But in the end, the court dismisses the cases. It is possible that Jimmy fathered children, but none have been officially recognized at this point jimmy is also suffering from insomnia so he gets diagnosed i'm sorry prescribed sleeping pills so he's got the pills he's got the alcohol he's got the drugs and he's physically wiped out then he gets a phone call that his former lover kathy etchingham is getting married so jimmy instantly drops everything kind of leaves what he's doing which he's in the middle of he's a he's not gonna try tour. to pull the graduate is he, he is yes like, oh no jimmy why so he goes to london and bear in mind the time frame this is late august slash september of 1970 we're getting down to the wire it doesn't work to say the least the graduate strategy so needless to say kathy is not swayed and lets jimmy down We don't know the specifics of that, but Jimmy is completely destroyed. He plays a few gigs in September, including the Isle of Wight Festival. Actually, that one's in August of 1970. His last public performance took place on September 6th. During this show, he allegedly told the audience, I've been dead for a long time. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. He was booed off stage in the end of the show. His last port of call was the Cumberland Hotel, located in London. Wow, yeah. you just wow, Jim, Jimi Hendrix. The last time he was on stage was booed off of it. He Good was booed Lord. off in his last performance. Yep. Jeez. 
1970. Yeah. In, in 1970. So Jimmy gives his final interview with a reporter named Keith Altham in London on, ninth, on uh, September 11th of 1970 is the final televised interview with Jimi Hendrix in which Jimmy alluded to his demise, which is apparently something he'd been doing for a while. Jimmy would tell friends things like when they would say, what are you doing next year? And, you know, so far up ahead, Jimmy would say something to the effect of, I won't be around. I won't be in my body. In one of the creepiest moments, though, he worked on a film called... That's not the creepiest moment? <laughs> no, this is the creepiest. Mm. He worked on a film called Rainbow Bridge, which was directed by Chuck Wine. It was a documentary about musicians in which Jimi Hendrix played himself. Roger Ebert labeled the film an incoherent mess. Huh. While filming, Wine approached Jimmy and said, hey, Jimmy, when are you going back to Seattle? Kind of casually. Jimmy turned to him and said, the next time I go to Seattle, it'll be in a pine box. Oh, oh my God. And he prefaced, and he followed that up with, I probably won't live to see 30. Wow. Which takes you know, there have two. been a few, there have been, and you've touched on some of these as you've done this podcast over the last year and a half or so, LD. Yeah. Where, where people, some of these folks almost foretell their own d demise. It, yeah. it does happen. Which brings us to September 17th, 1970. Jimmy did a jam session with formal animals vocalist and war vocalist Eric Burden, a voice you know from songs like House of the Rising Sun and mm -hmm. Spill the Wine. And... Yeah, exactly. Yep. Jimmy uh, leaves the Cumberland Hotel to meet one of his girlfriends, a young lady named Monica Daneman. Monica Daneman was a former figure skater and a painter. And she had a hotel, I'm sorry, she had an apartment in London. And according to Daneman, she and Jimmy were very much in love and intended to marry. That's her story. On the evening of September 17th, 1970, Daneman invited Jimmy to her apartment, which was a part of the Hotel Samarkand, which those of you who know your history, you know where this is going. She made Jimmy a tuna fish sandwich and they shared a bottle of white wine. Afterwards, they headed to a party of some mutual friends. This was around, you know, 12.30, 1 a.m. They come back to Monica's apartment around 3 o'clock in the morning. While at the party, Jimmy took what's known as a brown bomber, which is a strong amphetamine and not legal for the record. They continued to drink white wine. Monica offered Jimmy a Vesperex, which was a sleeping pill. The two talk, drift off to bed around 7 a.m., give or take. Monica wakes up around 10, and she doesn't want to wake Jimmy, so she kind of sneaks out of the apartment, goes to get cigarettes. She comes back and notices Jimmy is still asleep. She tries to rouse him, but she can't wake him. She sees dried vomit on the corners of his mouth, yeah. at which point Monica panics and immediately calls an ambulance. They arrive, and they take Jimmy, and they take her. They transport them to St. Mary Abbott's Hospital, where Jimmy was pronounced dead at 12.45 p.m. on September 18th. A simple end to a complicated life. That is, of course, if any of that were true. <laughs> now, everything I'm about to tell you has come up over the years. There was an inquest into Jimmy's death, which is a great word, inquest. I just love that. It sounds so official. It really does. So the inquest- well, and, and it is official. That This, this oh, yeah. is, I believe, a coroner yes. requesting an investigation. I think that's what an inquest yeah. is, right? So I'm going to start with the time of the inquest, which is Jimmy's death, 1970. But the info I'm about to share with you goes all the way until 2018. Wow. So here we go. There was, as mentioned, an inquest. Now, there was a problem here because initially they only interviewed one person about Jimmy's death, and that was Monica Daneman. Her testimony was taken at face value. 
The coroner did an examination and he declared that the official cause of death was barbiturate intoxication and inhalation of vomit. That's the official death, okay? Okay. However, he left the inquest open. So he didn't close the books on everything. One of the issues that also occurred was one, Daneman's testimony was the only one they listened to at first. And two, the press just ran with what they heard. All they heard was Rockstar died of drugs and alcohol. That's all we need. So they start running all these articles about heroin and drugs and drinking and everything without it really being you know, verified. During the inquest, what they found was that Daneman's testimony was completely unreliable. Huh. Here's another take on what happened on September 17th. Jimmy was seen around London. He was meeting with friends in the music business and actually talking about his career, i.e. wanting to get away from Michael Jeffrey and sort of get the experience out on his own. Can I, can I ask yeah. you, how far into the, the contract with him are we? Like uh, the, the contract is going to expire at the end of that year. Okay. So we're getting to the end of the contract and Jimmy wants out. Jimmy actually had dinner with not only Monica, but two other women. Monica was certainly the jealous type and they actually ended up getting into a fight. They go back to Monica's apartment where people in and around the area say that they could hear them arguing or in Britain, having a row. They're just so much fancier. I know, it's so great. Jimmy leaves by himself around 1 a.m. to go to a party. Two hours later, Monica appears at the party demanding to talk to Jimmy. The two leave together, still engaged in an argument. They go back to Monica's. During the times that Monica was interviewed, she changed the time that things took place. One of them was the departure for the party. The other was when they came home. And she also said she went out for cigarettes at three different times. 10 a.m., 9.30, 10.30. So there's already inconsistencies. Also, when they looked at the phone records, they found that the first call that morning did not go to the ambulance. It actually happened several hours before the ambulance was called and was placed to one of Monica's friends. Huh. And they said that the actual ambulance call takes place, give or take, around the initial time Monica cited. The ambulance drivers were interviewed, and they said that upon arriving at the location, Monica wasn't even there. They found Jimmy in an empty apartment, fully clothed. They drove him to St. Mary Abbott's by himself. When they arrived, the medical expert said Jimmy had actually been dead for several hours. Oh, wow. Weird. If that wasn't weird enough, he had a box of his own prescribed sleeping pills on his person, which raises the question, why take Monica's? The medical examiner confirmed that there were barbiturates in Jimmy's system that were nine times the recommended dose. Good Lord. They found no trace of a tuna fish sandwich in his stomach. They found no white wine in his stomach. Instead, they found copious amounts of red wine, not only in the stomach, but in the lungs. Whoa. Leading a change in cause of death to drowning. Wine doesn't go in your lungs. It also was noted, this is a, this is a kicker here, the wine had not been digested, which means it wasn't absorbed into his bloodstream. So it was poured, it was poured into his body. It was poured into his mouth after, after he, he was dead. This is one of the thoughts. To top it all off, it was reported that several people were seen coming and going from Monica's apartment from the point where the ambulance call happened throughout the day. Oh, so weird. this gives rise to a few theories about how Jimi Hendrix 
actually died because there are some major inconsistencies with the Danaman testimony. I mean, you know, I love a good conspiracy. Let's play this game. Well, here they are. There's, here's some possibilities. Number one, it was an accidental death. We all know that Jimmy was taking a lot of different drugs. He took sleeping pills. He was physically exhausted. It is possible that he took a lethal combination of drugs and alcohol. He fell asleep and just never woke up. However, it does raise the question of why did he take Monica's sleeping pills and also why was there the red wine? When later asked about the red wine, Monica said, I knew he had trouble sleeping, so I thought it would help. So again, she's changing her story. Right. That's, that's one, is accidental death. So possibility. Second possibility, Jimmy took his own life. We mentioned that Jimmy did a jam session with Eric Burden, correct? Right. Burden said that at the end of that session, Jimmy gave him a poem that he wrote, which Burden claimed was a goodbye slash suicide note. So one possibility is Jimmy, who was suffering from a ton of personal and professional issues, goes back to Monica's. They have a huge fight. He takes the sleeping pills and the alcohol, just saying, I'm done with it. I'm, I'm over, you know, and says goodbye. But again, if you're going to kill yourself, why would you have sleeping pills left in your pocket? Wouldn't you just take them all? Right. It also doesn't explain why Burden failed to produce this note at the inquest. This note didn't surface until much later. So for some reason, Burden hangs on to this weird note. An article in the Britain's The Guardian stated that a note was found with Jimmy's body, but it was never made clear if it was the one from Eric Burden. Huh. Which gives rise to another theory, and that's that Jimi Hendrix was murdered. I'm going murder. Okay. I'm, I'm going murder. I'm. There's a couple possibilities here. We're because gonna I think out. that guy with the thing is not good, and then the <laughs> stuff is bad. Well, here we go. So let's assume that there's foul play again. Who's to benefit? The most immediate beneficiary is Michael Jeffrey. Yep, that guy. At the time, Michael Jeffrey had a $2 million life insurance policy on Jimi Hendrix. Huh. Oh, wow. And they were clashing, and it was clear that Hendrix didn't want to work with Jeffrey anymore. It is also conjectured that Michael Jeffrey had tied to organized crime units in the U.S. and Britain, to which he owed money. Now, remember Devin Wilson, mm-hmm. groupie in the 60s? She was allegedly connected to the two women who met Jimmy and had dinner with him that evening and also had a hand in the party that he went to around 1 a.m. Interesting. She apparently clashed with Monica Daneman on not only that night, but multiple occasions. A roadie for the animals named James Tappy Wright wrote a book about his time with the animals and around this time as well, because he worked with Michael Jeffrey. Wright claims that in a drunken state, Michael Jeffrey confessed to murdering Jimi Hendrix. Now there's a problem with this. And the problem is that everyone involved in this case wound up dead. Huh. The first was Devin Wilson. She died in February of 1971 falling out of a window at the Chelsea Hotel in New York. Did you make bunny ears around falling? I absolutely did. It was ruled a, more bunny ears, suicide. Michael Jeffrey died in a plane crash in 1973. In 1996, Monica Daneman took her own life. When interviewed in 2008, someone accused James Tappy Wright of basically spinning a story. His response was, everyone's dead. You can't prove anything else. Okay. Mm. Okay. Can I just say? Okay. Can I just say? There's another theory here, but that that well, with this theory mm-hmm. specifically, that yeah. everybody ended up dead. We're also talking about 
um, oh, there's a big gap. De- Devin, Devin. She's 1971. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, who was the final one to die? Monica Daneman killed herself. Yeah, Michael. Uh, yeah, Daneman killed herself, but she also killed herself like 40 years after this event. And she also well, kept changing her story during the inquest. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. she was obviously out for self-preservation. She, Twenty. Well, 20, 26 years, but still. Just yeah, twenty twenty-six years, but still. I mean, it's like okay. It's like saying that the movie Poltergeist is cursed because all these people died. Well, yeah, all these people died because some of them were really old. Even so, the the death of Devin Wilson is very suspicious. And Tappy Wright's response is very ominous. I don't know what he's trying to do, protect his book or whatever, but it's really shady. The final theory is still murder. And it is conjectured that Jimmy was actually murdered by the CIA. The CIA has a covert group, which they say, which is targeted at what they call domestic terror threats. Anyone the, subversive, who, the subversive types. The subversive types, yeah. So Jimmy, through Devin Wilson, had ties to the Black Panthers. He was also very outspoken politically by the end of his career, so it is theorized that he was taken out. And there's an even crazier theory about this where Jimmy's actually kidnapped in London, flown to the United States, killed and returned to london i'm gonna i'm gonna vote no on that last one right Um, i'm going i'm I'm gonna say three i'm gonna go with three okay i'm picking three what are you picking t i'm gonna go with i don't know there's some weird stuff going on there it's really hinky yeah there well especially with the management uh knows he's about to dump him he's probably at that point worth more to them dead than alive two million bucks more yeah, the yeah the girlfriend is jealous. I don't know. I, I'm going to guess that it was perhaps not accidental. OD. I, You're going with number three. You're I don't know which one it is. I don't. I don't think. I don't think it was one of those last two. I don't think the CIA killed him. I certainly don't think they flew him back to America, murdered him, <laughs> then flew him back to London and put his plopped his body down in the <laughs> bed or whatever. Um, but I don't think it was. It doesn't sound accidental. There's a lot of there's a lot of hinky stuff happening. Yeah, there so I today. think you're going with number three, which was Jimmy was murdered uh, by somebody. By somebody yeah, close to him. Close to him, probably Michael Jeffrey. Or especially when you consider the undigested wine in his throat and his that's, lungs and stuff. That's just strange. That's the weird one. Because so, it, it would have to have been poured in his poured into his mouth after he was dead. Yeah, and the only. Uh, Again, the, the call of the coroner stands that it was barbiturates and inhalation of vomit. That is still there. But to this day, nobody really knows how Jimi Hendrix died. That sucks. Yeah. All we know is that on September 18th, 1970, he left. His body was embalmed and returned to his home city of Seattle. So remember his prophecy there? Yep. On October 1st, 1970, Jimmy was laid to rest in Greenwood Memorial Park. Notable attendees at the funeral were Miles Davis... And this I thought was very nice. Two bandmates, Noel Redding and Mitch Mitchell. Aww. In 2003, Jimmy's remains were actually moved from their original burial site to a memorial in the same park. And it was complete with a 30-foot granite dome and bronze sculpture, life-size, of the musician. His last guitar, which was allegedly used in September of 1970, was sold to Microsoft's Paul Allen in 1992, give or take. The price... Was two hundred and fifty-eight thousand dollars in nineteen ninety-two. Correct. Since then, Alan has, I think, either passed it to another owner, but whatever happened, it is now set in the 
Experience Museum Project in Seattle and is on display. So it is in a museum currently. There was actually a biopic about Jimi Hendrix directed by John Ridley called All Is By My Side. And in it, it focuses on four key women in his life, including uh, Devin Wilson and mostly Kathy Etchingham. And you'll be interested in this, uh, LD. Kathy Etchingham was portrayed by Haley Atwell. Oh, I love Haley yeah. Atwell. Known for playing yeah, Agent Peggy, Peggy Carter. Carter in the Avengers <laughs> series, yeah. Some of the major musicians that were influenced by Jimi Hendrix were George Clinton, Miles Davis, Steve Vai, Eric Clapton. I mean, the list is so long, you can't even list it. Johnny Lang, too, who's fantastic. And like I said before, I was doing this research, and it all just made me sad. Because I want you to picture for a moment a world where Jimi Hendrix didn't die. He only cut four albums while he was alive. Yeah. He was a visionary. It's like the quote by Arthur Schopenhauer is one of my favorite. Talent hits the target no one else can hit. Genius hits the target no one else can see. And Jimmy was well on his own plane. So can you imagine if he was still around today? And he would be. He'd be old enough to. Sorry, I was looking up because I was like, Paul Allen sound really familiar Mm -hmm. to me. And the reason why is because it was the character that Jared Leto played. Not that Paul Allen. Different Paul Allen. So confused. Uh, So as we close out this episode of Rock and Roll Heaven, again, we don't really know what happened to Jimmy. We do have his music. And I just want to say, Jimmy, thank you for your brief time on this planet. You really deserve that spot as the greatest of all time. I think that goes undisputed. And the last song we're going to play after we do our socials and sign off is about this small planet of ours. It's a little track that's <coughs> one of my favorites and highly overlooked from the Are You Experienced album. So I'll give that outro when we get to it. But first we'll do socials and sign offs. Okay. Well, you know, I, I'm bummed because I didn't have this formal education for Jimmy growing up. And I mean, that's that's just due to the, the household that we lived in. And I later found him literally because of Mike Myers. Wayne's <laughs> World is where, I, is where I really discovered, I had heard, I knew who he was, I'd heard a few of his songs. When Garth is doing the the, the dance with the with the pelvic thrust and he's got the sleeve of the shirt rolled around his, yeah, and it's bouncing about his junk and and he's toward Dream Girl. That's where I was like, what the hell is that? Who's, what is that? What is that? What is that magical noise that's playing in the background? <laughs> I, and and it, it was, and of course, it was Jimi Hendrix playing Foxy Lady. And I'm, I, you know, became a huge fan after that. Um, and it's yeah. just the funny thing about he, there, there's, there's, and, and we said this every week God, we could do a 10 hour podcast and we'd only be scratching the surface. Yeah, with somebody like him. So, but God, go listen to his music if you're not familiar with him. Go read anything that's out there. Go go to YouTube and just start. Just go down the rabbit hole because there's so there's so much there's so much stuff there with him. Yeah, and and yeah. And, and and Will's right. The guy died when he was 27 years old, and it, you just wonder, God, what what could he have done if he'd lived? It's un- unthinkable. It's unimaginable. Yeah, because and and the thing is, is you think of how, how what an amazing guitar player he became. In such a short period of time, because you just you just told us he didn't get a guitar till he was fifteen. He and was dead on, at twenty seven, and uh-huh. on his own, he yeah. didn't have formal lessons, and never had formal training. He did. He was never taught to tune a guitar, much right. less to play one. And and so within twelve years, look where he got. I mean, he is in. I mean, we had the discussion at the outset. There's about four or five names you can throw in a hat and pull one out for best ever. But he's one of them, uh, certainly without, 
unquestionably, in my opinion, he's one of the top three ever. And and the the difference between those top three or four is like the width of a sheet of paper. <laughs> you know, it's 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 my it's 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 a, a fraction of a millimeter. But imagine if he'd lived. That's yeah. what he he managed where he managed to get in twelve years of playing the. He didn't start playing when he was six or seven or even 10 or 11. He was 15 or 16. Yeah. He played the thing for 11 or 12 years and never had training of any kind. It's unbelievable where he got. And people will train a long time to do some of what he did. I mean, it's and, and, and one of the common threads that runs among all these great guitar players that, it, that in my mind, who I'm thinking of the best ones are he, Clapton, Stevie Ray, people like that. Yeah. Is how is that? A lot of times they're shy. A lot of times they're um, they lack in confidence a little bit, and and that they're overly humble. We already detailed. He said at one point Terry Kath was, "Oh, he's a much better you know, this guy from Chicago, a much better guitar player than me." Supposedly said the same thing about Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top at one point. Hmm. Um, you know, Clapton. You know, well. What's it feel like to be the best guitar player in the world? I don't know. Ask Prince. Prince, yep. Or earlier in his career, he said, "I don't know." Ask Jeff Beck. There you go. So it's it's one of the common threads that seems, and I don't know what that stems from. I don't know if that's like a confidence, just humility. I don't know. I feel like it's reverence. I know when they interviewed the late Kobe Bryant, they asked him, you know, can you compare yourself to Michael Jordan? And Kobe's response was a snicker. He was like, "Are you kidding me? That's Michael Jordan." You know, right. So I think it's it's respect and reverence and well deserved. Sure, but 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 the point is, is you listen to the, the body of work and it's not massive because because of how short his life was, but it's just it it'll just it'll floor you. Mm. The, the few we've played, you you listen to those and you're like, oh my god. And again, and, that's and the thing is, purpose, yeah. they never get old. No. Well, and and I will say this because you know we we did our episode what two episodes ago on Robert Johnson. The thing was that I couldn't distinguish the intro to any of Robert Johnson's songs. So when I was putting that episode together, I'm like, well, is this Crossroads? Is mm-hmm. this the, 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 what is it, The Devil in Me? Or, you know, what, what song is this? You couldn't distinguish anything. And he's one of the greatest guitarists of all time. Hendrix, I have discovered, has got this cacophony mm-hmm. of sound. And, and every one of them are distinguishable from one another. So it's not like he's taking something that he knows, beginning with that, and then changing it as he goes down the line. It starts off unique. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's completely different. No offense to Robert Johnson. Uh, oh, no, no. But uh, no, it, but he has a it, all of his... When you listen to a lot of the guitar parts on his songs, they, they're very similar. Yes. It's amazing. It's, yes. it's gorgeous. I couldn't do it if I'd spent the rest of my life playing the guitar. <laughs> but no, it, it does a lot of the... As he's... One song is not discernible from the other immediately. I, I understand. I understand what you're saying. Yes. Uh, but here's a, and I know you don't do. We don't do these often anymore. But here's a fun fact. Oh, fun wow! Fact. Wow. In the official sense, Jimi Hendrix is a one-hit wonder. Huh. And I feel like of anyone on the planet, you are the authority on that. So, what was it? Jimi Hendrix had one Billboard Top 40 hit. That was his remake of All Along the Watchtower. Oh, it was oh wow! Longer. See, I know that which, song. I know that song. That's which, which you know, Bob Dylan, upon hearing Jimi Hendrix's version, was like, "Well, yeah, screw it, I can't do that one anymore." <laughs> it's not mine. Yeah. <laughs> pretty much, yep. Yeah, he pretty much took that from me. 
Yeah. Uh, yes. In the very technical. Now, Jimmy wasn't writing for the radio. Jimmy was not. He was so ex- he was very experimental and doing different stuff than other people and and jamming and using, um, you know, feedback and distortion and playing fi- 15 minute long songs. So mm-hmm. he he wasn't really all that worried about getting radio airplay. <laughs> but his one top 40 hit was, in fact, all on the Watchtower. So yeah. in, in the in the literal sense, he was a one hit wonder. But I don't think he would have cared. So. Well, I, I I loved this episode because I knew nothing about Jimmy's life. I've heard, like I said, a couple of his songs, and it's not that I don't love him, like him. It was just I was not exposed to him. So I went the Queen, Led Zeppelin, that route, and not the Jimi Hendrix route when I was younger. And I just I just never was exposed to Jimi Hendrix. She loved Little Texas. And it was it was a pleasure. I I truly enjoyed this episode. So thank you so much, Will the Thrill. Yes, yes, ex- excellent episode. Very excellent good. Excellent episode. Thank you so much. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. We hope you liked it as much as I did because I was thrilled. So uh, if you think that we're doing an amazing job and you would like to give us money, you know, especially since it's now getting around the holidays, <laughs> you know, oh ho ho, uh, <laughs> you can do that at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven you can find us on twitter at rock and roll lt our instagram is rock and roll heaven lt facebook rock and roll heaven pod our website still not gonna say it <laughs> and you can email us at rock and roll heaven lt at gmail.com you can check out all the other awesome pantheon podcasts at rock and roll archaeology.com and thank you so much to one of our listeners who actually told me that Camden is not terrible. So it's oh, actually, right. it's actually a, a beautiful place. It's more like a touristy. A, a I saw that. I saw so, that on the, uh, what Facebook, the, so, from, from the Amy Winehouse episode. Right. Amy mm-hmm. Winehouse episode. So yeah, like we love interactions like that. Like, please let us know if you have any kind of thoughts on any of our episodes, be them old or new. We love to have you guys' input. And uh, also the final thing is guys, this is our last episode before the election so i make one final plea i implore you please make sure that you are mailing in those ballots dropping off those ballots going in person but doing it safely no matter what party affiliation you guys are with this is an incredibly important election year so please get out there and vote whatever way you can vote early don't vote often because that's corruption and weird. That's illegal. Right. Let's not illegal. let's not get people in trouble. Yeah. So we just ask you guys make sure that on uh, Super Tuesday, November third, you guys are getting your votes in. Uh, so I'm going to pass it back to Mr. Hickey right now to close us out. Thank you guys so much again. Uh, so from all of us here at Rock and Roll Heaven to all of you guys out there, the light at the end of the tunnel, maybe you. Good night. nice have a great week guys we will see you next week goodbye everybody and uh goodbye everyone thank you for joining us as i said we'd like to close out with one of my favorite hendrix songs this is an opus that describes his life skill and spirit that really made him who he was i leave you with third stone from the sun by Jimi hendrix
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 